I'm Jackie Lockie, your financial planning maestro. This series of podcasts is aimed at financial planning professionals and also those who are looking to enter the financial planning profession. We will be talking during the podcast about all things certified financial planner certification related, talking to other CFPs around the world, and also we will be dropping in on some new entrants who've just entered the financial planning profession, and we'll be checking up along the way on a regular basis with them to see how they're getting on. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Jackie Lockie, your financial planning maestro. And today I am joined by a very special guest who has recently gained his Certified Financial Planner certification. And that is Matt Greer, who is a Certified Financial Planner with Navigate IFA. Hello, Matt. Hi, Jackie. How's it going? I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Yes, not too bad. Thanks. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Nice to be able to have a chat with you. Yeah, lovely to have you with us today. And we are here to talk about your journey to becoming a certified financial planner yourself. But also more than that, I want to delve a little bit further into the changes that you've made in the business um, at Navigate since achieving your certified financial planner uh, certification as well. So we are going to start at the very beginning and tell us a little bit about how you got into the financial planning profession. Oh, God, it feels like a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) I think we were talking just before you pushed record there about how most people tend to fall into this industry. Yeah. I feel like I probably I'm I'm in that camp, definitely. Um, I graduated from university in 2012. And at that time, it was very, very hard to get a job. I remember there was a like graduate jobs. You used to apply for these graduate jobs and there was you'd be doing 20, 30, 40 applications a week and you'd just never hear back from anyone. Wow. And I remember I was living with friends at the time, working behind a bar, and I was just trying to get into something that was, you know, a full-time job so I could earn, earn a bit of money. And the, I managed to get a job for some time there. Um, just in it was in Sheffield because I, I went to university in England and was living with friends in Sheffield and got a job for something there uh, in customer service, which was kind of like my introduction to not only full time work but financial services as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so from Santander, a friend of mine who worked there got a job for Capita, a pension administrator. Yep. That once they were there for a few months and they were looking for some more staff and he said, I've got this guy who works at Santon there who loves spreadsheets, <laughs> which was me. And he said he'd be perfect to work here. And I went and had an interview and ended up working working there anyway in pension administration. And that was very much looking after sort of workplace pension schemes for big, big companies where Capital was doing the administration. So Going from knowing nothing about pensions to working there for three years was uh, really enlightening. I learned so, so much, and um, not just about pensions, but about financial services in general. Um, mm. but one of the things, one of the things that was frustrating about working there was I worked there around I think it was twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen. So it was all during the pension freedom changes in twenty fifteen. I yeah. was with administration, so. You can imagine going from before 2015, where all we were doing was 
not just in annuities, doing trivial commutation lump sums and paying out defined benefit pensions, etc. And all of a sudden, there's all this new flexibility and new options that people have, which is fantastic. Um, but so often I saw people making what I thought were really, really bad decisions with their retirement savings. Now, it's not in a judgmental way. It was more of a, this is the only pension that I've got and I'm going to withdraw it and buy a new car or something. Wow, yeah. Um, there's kind of nothing that you can do whenever you're working in that capacity because you're not able to give advice or anything like that, rightfully so. So I kind of thought, I, I kind of thought well, these people need, you know, there's a lot of people here that need advice and that they need help. And all we're really doing there is referring people to whatever it was, pension-wise or something. And, you know, I thought I would like to be on the other end of that. I would like to be the one helping people with their pensions because I feel like I had a, you know, a really good understanding of them after working in it for, for three or four years. Yeah, yeah. And so is that kind of crystallised you into, I need to change direction? Yeah, exactly that. So I thought, because, you know, we're talking to your friend, I think I was like 25 or something, and no one really knows anything about pensions at 25. But I felt like I had a really, really good knowledge. And I did a couple of exams and things that were sort of pension related. And I just felt like I had had more more to offer than just doing administration, if that makes sense. Not that yeah. that's anything wrong with that. I just felt like I wanted to do a little bit more. Um, so I started looking at ways at how I could transition, you know, What's, what roles would there be available to, for someone like that with pensions expertise? And I ended up getting a job at Grant Thornton, um, who are now Aberdeen. Um, so they were bought, bought over by Standard Life. Um, but when I joined them, they were an IFA. Um, they were brilliant. They sort of gave me a, a, you know, a really good opportunity to come in as a trainee power planner, despite not even knowing what a power planner was at that stage. Well, um, they brought me in. They obviously saw that I had a lot of knowledge around pensions and things. And I was a sort of a senior member of the team at Capital. So I guess there was some transferable skills that I could bring across. And yeah, they, they gave me lots of brilliant training, access to clients, advisors, you know, was suddenly able to be in the same room as advisors when they're giving advice and, and all of those brilliant things that you could then see. Yeah, there's a real career here. Um, you know, this is something I really want to, to get stuck into. And yeah, that's that's really how how I got into financial services, financial planning, and sp- specifically, yeah. Um, for me, it was that real change yeah, of going into Grand Thornton and seeing the advice being given and seeing the difference that it was making to people's lives. Yeah, and that's when it sort of really hit home to me. I said, "Yeah, no, I, this is something I really want to do." I think that's the key, isn't it? You know, helping people make an informed choice rather than like you were saying on the telephone when you've got somebody who's like, well, I'm just going to cash in my pension and buy myself a car, Um, you know, actually going, well, you know, that might be the right thing to do. But actually, you know, if you were in that position to be able to give them advice, you could go, okay, well, let's press the pause button and just explore everything else about your life before you go ahead and, you know, buy the Ferrari or whatever it is. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. And yeah, that was the thing, like I said, that hit home talking to advisors and seeing the enthusiasm they had speaking to their clients and how much they enjoyed it. Um, I've always enjoyed speaking with people. I've always been a bit of a people person. And it was almost just like a, like I say, fell into it, but it was almost just like a light bulb, light bulb, or a light yeah. switch rather, went off in my head. And I thought, yeah, this is this is for me. I can use 
the skills that I've already got, the soft skills, and I can use the technical knowledge that I've managed to get. Um, so yeah, that's what really sort of pushed me into into financial planning, and I've not looked back since. So then, how did you find out about the certified financial planner? And at what point did you say to yourself, right? you know, what I've got, the knowledge and experience that I have given to clients isn't enough that I need to, you know, up yeah. my game and get this. So for me, there's a couple of points, which I suppose maybe people, I, I'm in my early 30s, Jackie, which is quite young for advisors in, in general, especially in Northern Ireland. Um, so there's kind of two elements to it. So the first one was I left Grand Zone in, in 2018. They were brilliant in helping me relocate back to Northern Ireland. Um and then I was there for about a year and then I joined a smaller firm, an IFA firm called Navigate. And I've, I've been here for five years. When, when I joined Navigate, um, I set about doing my exams very, very efficiently. So my level four diploma, um, because there was a real pathway here at Navigate for them to to allow me to be an advisor, Yeah. Um, which wasn't there in my old place. So I, I did my level four exams sort of fairly quickly got myself signed off and was able to then sit in front of the clients and, and start to give advice. Um, but I suppose the two reasons why I wanted to pursue further further knowledge was, there was number one, which was the, the sort of imposter syndrome side of things, which was I felt very young to be doing my job because I would, I'd always been surrounded by people who were much older who were the advisors. So I felt like I needed to get a leg up on that in terms of, well, if I am going to be young, and people's perceptions of me are going to be quite young to be doing this job, then I want to be very knowledgeable. I want to have real good technical expertise um, to try and combat that, if you like. Mm. So that's kind of just an imposter syndrome type thing rather than anything that makes any sense, probably. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing was I've always, since I, I never really enjoyed exams at school or anything, but as soon as I have an interest in something, um, I, I tend to just focus on it and go for it so as soon as I started having an interest in these subjects and these things then it kind of lit a spark inside me where it's like yeah I can I can do this and I'm genuinely interested in this stuff and I want to learn about it so so why not um just crack on with them so I started then to look at well so I've done my level four which is obviously the, the baseline level of qualification to be an advisor you know what's what's next and personally I didn't really enjoy the CII's learning experience with the level four diploma, I felt it was a, a box ticking exercise that, you know, you learn what you need to learn to pass an exam and, and that's kind of it. So I wanted to take a different route for further education if I could. And whenever I was looking at what options there were, you know, there's different exam bodies, but the main one that kept popping up was the CFP. And, I, you know, I was on LinkedIn and I could see American advisors who were doing financial planning proper financial planning who have this these letters after their name and you know I started to research it a little bit more and when I looked a little bit into what the CISI were offering because I think it was around the time that the program changed to the exam and the case study because I'm yeah. not sure that's always the always the way um it seemed like it was a really good fit for me for what I wanted to do um I didn't just want to box tick I didn't just want to learn enough to pass an exam so that I could say I've passed an exam I wanted it to make a real tangible difference to the advice that I was giving to people um, mm. and the experience that my clients were receiving. I wanted to make sure they were getting the best quality advice um, from, you know, someone that's very qualified, not yeah. just, I'll, um, 
you know, I can do a trust, but I need to go and Google it or I need to go and research this because I passed my exam, but I don't really know anything about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's a difference in gaining the knowledge and having the confidence to apply that knowledge in those different real life client situations, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And look, maybe that's just that was just my approach to the CII exams. I just always felt it was it was like that in a sense. It was um, you learn enough to pass the exam, and then I kind of never really retained the information afterwards. But the whole process of the CFP has been so vastly different than that. Um, the focus on holistic planning. You know the complexity of what you're what you're having to do for these these case study clients. It just intrigued me, and it, it you know it really interested me to try and push myself to try and see because like you hear the horror stories about the pass rates and <laughs> anyone that I knew that had done it. Like there was a guy that worked in our office that had failed it three times, and he was like, "Don't do it. It's you know it's awful. It's the worst thing ever." And if anything, that kind of pushed me on a little bit because I was thinking, well, <laughs> how hard can it how hard can it actually be? If, if you know, it, it, I felt like it must have been a worthwhile qualification, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so then you so you embarked on the level six exam first as your first of the two steps to gain your certification. Yeah, yeah so I did that quite quickly. Um, I think I signed up for the uh, for the CFP and then I just tried to do it as quickly as possible took the next sit in and, and it was actually really good it was a, it was a sort of a breath of fresh air from the CII stuff that I was doing before um, and, and it gives you a really good foundation and how did you find the study materials did you know did you do any courses or did you just kind of stick your nose in the book and and off you went kind of thing um well the course I did do a course um but the course was more around the case study. Um, so in terms of the level six exam, that was just sort of, yeah, stuck my head in. It was quite similar, I guess, in a way to the RO6, which is the financial planning case study that you do with the CII yeah. as part of your diploma. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a case study, it asks you questions. So it wasn't something that you necessarily had to really study massively for. It was more around the application of financial planning. Um, and luckily in my job, you know, we do holistic financial planning and I've always done so here. So um, it was very much, I could really draw on my real life experience for, for that uh, exam, yeah. which was great. Um, oh, well, that's fantastic then. So that led you swiftly on um, in a pretty short space of time onto the level seven case study. Yes. So the case study, the the mammoth case study um, <laughs> for that, I me and my, we and one of my uh, colleagues and directors at Navigate, Paul McCubrey, we um, started the process at the same time. So we took the exam at the same time and we um, sort of embarked on the case study at the same time, which was very helpful because it meant we were able to, you know, to sit and go through things together. And honestly, I w- one of the main things I would recommend is if you are considering doing this, um, going down this road, have someone that you do it with it doesn't necessarily need to be someone that you know <laughs> like I'm part of next gen planners as you know Jackie and yep. next gen are brilliant they have cohorts that are doing the CFP and there's always people in that group that are that are undertaking the case study and it's just brilliant to have someone to be able to bounce ideas off yeah um, not necessarily it doesn't even matter if they're doing the same case study as you it's just someone that you can ask these critical questions to as opposed to just bouncing them around your your own head yeah, um, because you you can really really confuse yourself very easily when you're doing the case study. Oh yes, um, and quite a lot of people <laughs> on on my courses at the moment are right at that point. Um, yeah. So I'm sure you'll have lots of tips to share with them a little later in the podcast. 
So, but just going back to the level seven, the case study itself, tell us a bit about how you approached it in order to get it done. Because obviously you've got 10 weeks um, from the date that you receive your case study and you've got to turn out, you know, a financial plan, which is no more than 60 pages. Um, So how did you approach the case study? Are there any particular things that you think, actually, you know, if I had my time again, I'm really glad that I did it that way, or I wish I'd done it slightly differently? So yeah, there's a few a few things that I would um 100 percent recommend. Um the first thing that I did um was sign up to a training course. So the one that the particular one that I did was through the Financial Planning Training Academy. Yeah. With a um advisor called Steve Martin, who runs training courses for financial advisors. Brilliant. Um that course was fantastic. As part of that course is how I met you, Jackie, because Part of the course was you got a, a session with you as part of part of the course. Yes, indeed. Um, which was sort of invaluable. Um, the course itself, the, the case study is, it is, um, you know, it's very, very hard. There, there's sort of no two ways about it. It is difficult and you do need help. Um, for anyone that does it without going on a course or speaking to, to yourself, fair play to them. But I really think that 99% of people, you know, they are going to need a bit of help. So what the Training Academy course gave me was a really, really good base, um, base financial plan that was in a spreadsheet form and provided a really great outline for, you know, for what needs to be done and what type of advice you were going to give. Yeah. The spreadsheet that you use, the spreadsheet is, um, it can be quite daunting. I'm not sure. Is there a way that you can do the plan without doing a spreadsheet, Jackie? I don't think so. I know some people who've tried using Voyant um, and every person I know who's used Voyant has uh, ended up ditching it and using (laughs) Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) Yeah. So what the um, what the what the training course gave you was you went through the spreadsheet in a group. So I think there was maybe five or six of us on our cohort, maybe, maybe more. And what Steve was doing was he would go through the, the spreadsheet bit by bit. He would make sure that you knew exactly how you were laying it out, how your assumptions were formed and almost the knowledge to know that you have to question everything that you're doing. So if you're writing a sentence in the report, you have to be able to back it up. You can't just say, here's the assumption I'm making. You have to be able to back it all up. So the, the sort of knowledge that that gave you, the platform that that gave us was then brilliant. Because then with me being quite good with spreadsheets anyway, as soon as I had the base ready to go, I could then just go and sit on my own, get my head into it, and I could just build from there. So the platform that that gave you was was fantastic. Um, yeah. And obviously then you, as part of that course, you got a coaching session with you, which was brilliant because – by the time I came to have the, the coaching call with you, I was sort of 90% sure what advice I was going to give to the clients. And then to have you then as an expert to be able to bounce the questions off and think, well, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Here's the obstacles I have. <clears throat> Sorry, what what do you think I can do to get past these obstacles? And then you were then able to come back and say, well, actually, you need to look at it from this perspective or you need to do this, or I don't think that's actually quite going to work, or I don't think you're going to be able to justify that. That then I was able to rubber stamp what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and it meant through doing that course and from speaking to you, I did fail my first attempt, but it was very narrow. It was a very narrow fail. And it meant that my second submission was almost a certain day to pass because of the preparation that it went into the first submission. Yes. Um, 
And I think that's key, isn't it? it? You've got to give it your all with the first submission, because I know some people kind of think, oh, you know, you get to a point where you just think, oh, I'll leave it to the last minute. Other people that I've interviewed on the podcast have been lastminute.com and two weeks before the deadline, they're like, right, roll my sleeves up. Let's get this case study done. Um, but actually, you need that thinking time, don't you? You know, to start yeah. thinking critically about the client in different ways of looking at things. You really do. And you need to think of them as if they're an actual client. My my wife will probably tell you that she hates my clients. I could tell you their names, their date of births and everything still <laughs> two years on. She hates them because I would just sit and I'd be sitting there thinking, oh, I think I'm going to do this. Or I think Fiona, I can't, I th- one of them was called Fiona. I think, oh, well, no, I think I can't do this because then Fiona would be doing this. And my wife would be like, just shut up. I'm like, oh, bloody case study. So you have to really, it has to become a part of your life. Oh, I mean, to be honest with you, my clients as an advisor become a part of my life and I do whenever I'm taking clients on and helping them build their financial plans and get started with with work and you know whatever it is that we're doing for them you have to treat them like that you have to treat them as if they're full financial planning clients of your business and you have to have to treat them like that so for me they just became and you know another couple of clients in my client client that I was yeah that I was trying to provide a full comprehensive financial plan for. And were there any particular aspects of building the case study that, you know, you struggled with and you just thought, mm, you know, I just can't, you know, looking back now that you wish that you'd approach differently? Because obviously being an Excel whiz um, stands you in a huge, uh, a huge advantage to a lot of other people. But w- what about the other aspects of the case study? Were there particular areas where you thought, oh, either this isn't, I, you know, don't do this every day of the week, therefore, yeah. um, or maybe looking at two different objectives that were, you know, competing for the same amount of income, perhaps? Yeah. So look, there's that side of it. But for, to be honest, my, my case study was okay because the objectives were fairly clear. Um, so you're able to prioritize the you know, the funds in, in terms of what their priorities are in terms of objective-wise. So that wasn't necessarily a concern for me. One of the things that I did find difficult was the rationalising everything. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a common sense approach with this. Mm. You can't assume that the clients have any prior knowledge. You can't assume that you've ever met the clients before. You can't assume information has been provided to you or is going to be provided to you you have to be able to back up every single thing that you say in your 60 page case study. And it has to be, you know, measured and honest and you can't uh, sort of, you can't mess about with it. You can't change what you're doing to, to make it work for your case study or to make it work within your figures. Yeah. You know, the examiners will spot that a mile away if you're, you know, twiddling figures just to make them work within your parameters. Yeah. And you're right, they they do spot it a mile away. I had another client who decided to, there was a a couple who were cohabiting and he decided to recommend that they get married um, without asking (laughs) them. And actually the case study notes had said that they're happy as they are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Um, Something like that. The attention to detail that you need to have is second to none. You need to like what you said there, that, that would have been a sentence. It would have said something like, they're cohabiting and they're happy as they are with no plans to get married or something like that. And that would have been one sentence in the whole vast amount of information that's provided to you. And if you miss that, then you fail the case study. Yeah. So you need to be razor sharp attention to detail. And I think for me, the bit that I I didn't pass the first time because of a 
an income tax calculation or something, I think it was. I had planned out their expenditure in retirement down to the penny, um, but I, I hadn't taken something stupid into account, um, like income tax or personal allowance. So it was some small minor thing, but because of that small minor thing, it caused like four or five things to fail in like a ripple effect. Mm, um, yes. So the, yeah, so the attention to detail, you really need to think about why. You need to know why. So say... Uh, why and how, I guess, is the main thing. So if a client's saying they want to retire at 60 and they need 50 grand a year net, you need to think, okay, how am I getting that 50 grand? How is that being made up? What taxes are be to take into account, personal allowance, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to be really, really detail-oriented. Yes. Um, but and time's it, the main one, Jackie. You need to commit enough time to it. Um, yeah. And how long did it take you to complete your case study, do you think? Well, so 10 weeks. To be honest, I, I would normally leave things to the last minute in my everyday life, if I'm being honest with you, Jackie, but I really <laughs> didn't. And this, I made a real conscious decision that this wasn't going to happen again for this, just because I knew how much of a mammoth task it would be. And like you, I've, I know people that have done this um, process and left it to the last minute, and the stress is not worth it, um, believe me. So I spent the whole 10 weeks, I had two hours a week that were sort of in working time that I dedicated towards it. Um, but then I probably spent about 10 hours a week, I would imagine, um, mostly in evenings and over the weekend. So probably about 100 hours in total. Um, wow. I'd say that I spent now about 60% of that, 70% of that was on the spreadsheet. Um, and 30% was on actually writing and formatting the report. Yes. Yeah. And I, 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 I put a real emphasis on trying to make sure that the spreadsheet was sitting perfectly and that yes. the advice on the spreadsheet was sort of ironclad without any any gaps in it. And then yeah. it's easy to write from there. And that's the thing that a lot of people get anxious that they start writing early. Um, I do know somebody who wrote 32 pages out of the, your 60 limit as an introduction because they kind of got verbal diarrhea and they just felt this urge to write something where actually, you know, I was saying, as, as you've suggested, is to stick with the spreadsheets first, let the spreadsheets drive the numbers because then once you yeah. can see exactly all the recommendations that you're going to make that's easily laid out in front of you, then it takes, you know, no time um i normally most people tell me it takes about you know 10 hours or so to write up the whole plan once you know what all of your solutions are yeah i would i would totally agree with that okay i would say the actual writing and i probably spent more time formatting the 60 pages than i did spend on writing um <laughs> fiddling. Writing, yeah fiddling with tables and things to try and get it under 60 pages but i would say probably five to ten hours on on actually physically writing um yeah. But that is actually, it's, uh, that is a, an art and a challenge in itself to get that report or that case study to be under 60 pages. Yes. Um, that was one of one of the most challenging parts of it because the spreadsheet, God, I couldn't even tell you how many tabs were on that spreadsheet, 30 plus tabs and so, so, so much detail to then try and condense all that into 60 pages whilst making sure you're covering everything. Yes. Um, that's probably one of the most challenging parts about the Absolutely. And so now that you have you've gone through all of that process, achieved your certification and, uh, you know, a little bit of time has passed now where you've kind of 
you know, I know that you've started to make changes in the business, you know, based on your experience and also Paul's experience too, of going through and gaining his CFP certification as well. What sorts of changes have you made since then? Ah, oh, loads, loads. So before either Paul or I embarked on the on the CFP, you know, we were proper holistic financial planners. We were writing financial plans for clients, you know, proper detailed cash flow planning, um, client objective led, you know, all the usual stuff that you would expect from from financial planners doing a good job. Um, but doing the CFP has just taken it to a whole, whole new level. Um, it really made us sort of start from the bottom and think about the client experience from start to finish, to think about the advice process in in the same way as you think about the, the CFP case study. Now, I'm not saying to do a 30-tab spreadsheet and a 60-page report for every client, because <laughs> um, luckily we have things like cash flow, cash flow planning software and things which we don't need to use a spreadsheet for. Um, but it's more about the approach that you're taking and being able to justify and reason why you're doing these things, why you're recommending them, why mm. they're important to the client. For, for me, the, the key was for me, that I took out of it was quantifying and qualifying clients' objectives. So whereas previously I would have maybe put in a report or or would have agreed with a client, say, you want to retire at 60 and you know maintain your standard of living and and that would be, you know, a good outcome or a good good objective for the client. Yeah, I don't I don't do that anymore now. It's very much quantified and qualified. So, it, rather than that first thing I said, it would be you want to retire at sixty. You need X amount of money to live your current standard of living plus Y amount of money to spend on whatever it is that you want to spend on in retirement. So mm. it'd be much more qualified. It's, it's it's less detail, so it's not as it's not like woolly or anything like that. It is specific, and for me, the clients get a lot more benefit out of that because you're being very, very specific with what it is that you're aiming for, which means you can be very specific in the objectives that you're you know you're recommending to achieve. Oh, uh, no, sorry, you can be specific with your recommendations that you're doing to to achieve the objectives. And I guess also it, it gives the clients the opportunity to go. Actually, no, I don't like the look of that, doesn't it? Or, you know, yeah. w- when it's that specific, they kind of go, well, can I have a bit more? Or I, I never thought I could yeah. do this as a hobby or whatever. Exactly. I think that's that's a key takeaway from it is that you, you have to be specific. What is it, that saying? Being specific is terrific. Mm-hmm. I know I quantify and qualify every objective, even if it's down to something stupid, like, you know, I want to... Uh, help my child in university or something okay well let's be really specific about that how much you know would be good and you know sometimes you have to assume things or you have to just agree and say look you know you're 20 30 years away from retirement let's just put this number in or let's agree on this number and we'll have it as something to aim for and whereas the numbers can be a lot more specific for people who are you know a bit closer to their objectives yeah. And um, you, yeah. you've actually changed some of your business processes like client report templates and things like that as well, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. So they're all sort of now more focused and structured. So if anyone's done the CFP that's listening to this, you'll know the, the structure is very similar um, in the report for all of them. Um, the way they look at their you know, current situation, the analysis, the recommendations section. Ours follows a, a fairly similar uh, pattern now, albeit slightly less detailed, um, because I don't think there's any 
of my clients that would welcome a 60-page report <laughs> and land in on their door. So we try and simplify the language where we can and try and make things as sort of succinct as we possibly can. Um, but for me, it's trying to incorporate all that's good about the, the CFP and the case study, but also not writing a 70-page report. So it's hard. Yeah. A hard balance to strike but i suppose the key the key takeaways are that quantifying and qualifying and um being really clear with your analysis luckily you can do stuff like that with cash flow planning software and appendices and everything like that and what's been the feedback from clients about this change um yeah it's an interesting one because obviously new clients they wouldn't have known any different um because they would have just been brought through this process but the existing clients who are now being asked to quantify what it is that they're trying to do um they're finding a massive benefit from it um i think so we're um we get reviews and vouched for like a lot of advisors and we're a vouched for top rated firm for, for this year and, and i think for next year as well likely and one of the metrics that they ask clients about is how confident do you feel like you're on track to achieving your goals and that numbers actually went up in the past year so last year was the first year that we we did it um, it was very, I can't remember how it was very high, it was like in the 90s. But anyway, this this year has actually went up and yeah. there's a higher amount of clients that are feeling like they know they're on track to achieving their goals. And that's fantastic. I mean, that must give you a really kind of warm, fuzzy glow. Yeah, 100. That's what it's all about. Um, Jackie, that is literally what it's all about. You want clients to have sort of no doubt about where they stand in achieving what they want to achieve. And sometimes, as you know, you won't be able to give them the good answer and maybe they're not on track or they're off track or there's some tweaks that they need to make. Um, but yeah, that's why we all do the job because there's nothing better than being able to show someone on a screen to say, yeah, you're you're going to be okay. You can yeah. you can do what it is that you want to do and, and be happy. And on the back of all of this, are there other changes that you're kind of starting to mull over now that you think actually I can still take this further and make more improvements? Or are you kind of happy with the balance of, of what you've done so far? So I think we're happy enough with how we've managed to implement it into to the process of what you know what we're doing. Um, I think one of the things we did, I suppose, from a company point of view is that if if there's four advisors here, um, two of which are CFP now, I think if anyone, if we were to bring on any other advisors or if we were going to, you know, promote from within we would make sure that the cfp was part of their journey as well um you know we feel like it's the gold standard for financial planning now especially that um paul one of the directors has been through it and myself has been through it um in the past two or three years you know we feel like if you are going to provide the best quality advice in a proper way but while you're doing proper financial planning you know, we feel like you would have to be a CFP in order to provide that level of, of quality advice. So yeah. I think if we were going to bring anyone on or promote with from within, the CFP would have to be built into to a development plan to make sure that they were as, you know, robust in their qualifications as we are. Yeah. And that's great to hear because I think, you know, clearly it's, you know, it's benefited you. It's better benefited, you know, Paul as well, benefited the business. And ultimately, you know, the reason why we're getting out of bed is to benefit the clients. And it's great to hear that going through the process, whilst, as you say, you know, it's no mean feat to, you know, yeah. even decide, you know, to to buy the case study, to start on that journey. Um, but actually to achieve it, it's it's all worthwhile in the end. Exactly. I think 
the outcomes, client outcomes is, is the number one priority. If you can make a client have a better understanding of of their personal situation, then you've done your job. So yeah. for me, the way that you do that is by making sure that you're as you know as educated as you possibly can and as experienced as you can and, and helping to helping clients understand that in, in simple language. And one of the things the CFP does really well is help you outline look the CFP and you would never present the CFP case study to a client touch wood I hope not anyway because it's so much detail that you know any client would be overwhelmed by that so the key is how can you take all the brilliant bits of it and cut out sort of the the overkill stuff so for me that's really what we've tried to do is sort of now that we've both completed it is to look back and think well you know what were the really good bits of that that we can take away and how can those good bits really help our process? Because it's yeah. one of the things that we always try and think. We, you know, we have a meeting every week where we try and think, okay, well, how can we make things better this week? What can we do to make things better for yeah. you know, whether it's the business or the staff or the clients, how can we make things things better? And CFP gives you such a great framework that you can make so many good changes from it, as you know yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Make a real difference to people. Yeah. And Matt, we are nearly out of time today. I could talk to you all afternoon, I have to say, but I'm going to ask you one last question. So for those people who are listening who are have just come across the CFP or are thinking about starting their journey to become a certified financial planner, do you have any tips for them? Yes, I do. Definitely. Loads, loads of them. Um what I would say is if anyone listening to this wants to have a chat to someone that's been through the process, just then feel free to get in touch. Um, but the three main tips that I would give would be, number one, make time for it. If you don't schedule time for this, it will become a burden and you do not want it to become a burden. I've seen a few people now get to the end. Maybe there's two weeks left and they just sack it off. And in one instance, someone someone that I know ended up submitting a blank one um, oh. because they didn't want a new case study, if that makes sense. So yeah. they submitted like a, a, a basically one that they knew was going to fail um, just to get a submission in so they didn't have to change case studies. But then that means they're one submission down. Yeah. Um, whereas for me, because I was able to put so much work in prior to the first submission, like I said to you earlier, I got so close to passing it on the first submission that the second submission was a formality. Yeah. The yeah. last thing that you want to do is go into, and also the other thing I suppose would be if you're making time for it, the first submission is the most important submission that you'll make. That's where you will get 90% of your marks, hopefully. And then you can take it into the second submission where hopefully you pass. And then the third submission should be your last resort. Yeah. That should be, the third submission should be the formality if the second one isn't, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, yeah. But the only way you can do that is by making time for the first submission. So those first 10 weeks should be laser focused, 10 hours a week plus, making sure that the spreadsheet is as perfect as it can possibly be. Yeah, um, full on. Second, yeah, full on. <laughs> but the second tip would be to seek help. So like I said earlier, it, it, personally, I would find it impossible to do without help. So whether that's a coach, a consultant or a training program like the one that I went on or whether it's through next gen if they've got some kind of training program I'm not sure it wouldn't be possible to do without the help in my opinion so definitely definitely seek help whether it's through one-to-one coaching or as part of a group um find someone that's doing it at the same time as you 
and form a little study group, whether it's virtually or, or in person, um, and get help and get coaching from experts uh, like you, Jackie, more like Steve. Um, and then the third thing is to enjoy the process and take things away from it. So when you're in the trenches, so to speak, when you're doing 10 hours plus on a case study, on an Excel spreadsheet, it can be very demoralizing, especially if you're working 40, 50 hours a week and you've got a family or whatever, you can feel like this is not a pain in my side. Yes. But you will take a you will take a lot of things away from it. And there's a lot of useful information in there that will make you better at your job. So approach it with curiosity for everything that you're doing. Think how can I improve my business and my job and the job that I do for my clients? How can I improve that? So like dead basic example, if one of your clients, if one of your case study clients has got a protection need, you will have to go into depth on that protection need in a way that you may not go into depth with your clients in real life. Maybe it's just not your sole focus, but you will have to do that. So automatically you'll gain some knowledge from that and you'll be able to approach your work with clients in a, in a new way. And the same goes for any of the objectives, whether it's paying for school fees or saving for retirement, whatever it is that the, the, the case study clients are aiming for, you're going to have to go into so much so much depth on the objectives that you, it's impossible not to take things away from it. So be curious, enjoy the process, and try and think, how can this process that I'm putting myself through, you know, I'm going to get a nice qualification at the end of it, but at the end of the day, it's all for the clients. So what can I take away that'll give my clients a better outcome? Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Jackie. Lovely to speak to you. It's really interesting, isn't it, to listen to different people who have different experiences of gaining their certified financial planner certification or maybe developing the financial planning profession at large. If you know anybody who you think might be interested in listening to any of these podcasts, then please do pass on our details. That's it for me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. See you again soon. Bye for now.